Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. Okay, so today on the podcast, I don't have a surveyor. Sometimes I throw these curveballs in, but today we've got Elena Gregorio from Gregorio Interiors. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm very well and thanks for having me on. Really happy to be here. Great. Do you want to just introduce yourself to the audience? Very much. So uh, I have a background basically as an interior designer. That is, I, I guess, what I say when somebody says, well, what job do you do? I say, well, I'm an interior designer. And then they say, well, why are you dealing with sustainability? And then I explain how perhaps sustainable consulting has evolved out of trying to do a sustainable interior uh, as a job. So I am an interior designer. I'm also a sustainability consultant now that specializes in interior fit out and sustainability. Uh, I have a team around me that helps me do that. And my own company, Gregorio Interiors, based in central London. So we've been going for about 12 years now. And um, before that, I worked with a couple of really solid architectural firms, mostly, uh, where progressively, I guess, I was thinking that they were perhaps covering aspects of design that I thought were really important in the way good design was should be delivered. And hence why I thought actually to do that, I needed to set up my own business. And it's been, yeah, that's that's where I'm on now, on that, on that journey. So um, so yeah, so we do that. And I guess the objective, and I was I was actually reviewing really what is what is the mission of the business? You know, everybody's kind of reviewing stuff. And at the moment, I guess the there is a mission, but the vision is to actually create spaces that are supporting the flourishing of all people inside there and not costing the earth instead of actually being a positive influence to the actual environment that we're hosted in. So it is quite an ambitious target and I every project is progressively there, but that is the vision that we want to deliver basically on every project that we're working on. And that's the thing about a vision in your business is it's got to be big you've got to aim for it and just go for it yeah. it's interesting actually I've met um mainly women I have to say but a number of women surveyors or training surveyors who've actually started or had a background in interior design and that then got them into sort of the surveying getting you know getting involved in the the more the bricks and mortar but you know when everyone anyone says interior design you can't help but think about all these house makeover programs that we had <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I'll admit, I've got a crush on George Clark. It's oh, okay. Who you know. doesn't with his vision? <laughs> oh, I love his vision. Absolutely. Um, do, uh, really. Question. Do, um, do you watch any of those interior design programs or are you too good for that now? No, I, I, I'm not. I don't think I'm too good for that. I don't watch them though. Two reasons. One, I was really, um, it still irks, I think, the damage that a lot of these uh, shows have created to the interior design profession. Mm. On one hand, they do make approachable the idea of, of a designed space to the masses. So for that, I think, yes, but they devalue the value of having the right design process integrated in a project. 
And so it's been extremely difficult then for us as, as professional designers to be able to be valued and not to think that they could do the same job and it's just about picking a few materials. Yeah. You know, that is the, mm-hmm. that's the, the cover of, of a book. That's not the book. Now, that's, that's interesting because there'll be many a surveyor listening to this who will have walked into a property and will be looking at the decor thinking, what the hell's gone on here? And I, and I can recall two, two examples in my career many, many years ago. The first one was... 1930s house, pretty traditional, uh, semi. And I walked in and they'd knocked through the sort of the kitchen living room area. And I remember, and I think it was, oh, crikey, I can't remember which programme it was now, the Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen one, but it wasn't him that did the room. I can't remember the programme now. And in that programme, they'd basically stripped out the room and instead of having a proper table and chairs, dining table and chairs, they'd got garden furniture. And I remember they'd painted the walls Magnolia, except they called it a different colour. It was like some posh name for Magnolia. And I'm thinking, oh. Anyway, I walk into this property in Croydon and this lady had cleared out her dining room, kitchen sort of area and rep- tried tried to replicate the same thing. And it was basically a green <laughs> plastic table and chairs in the middle and painted like a... <laughs> a blush magnolia colour and she was quoting the the programme and I thought, yeah, that doesn't doesn't really, <laughs> really bring really, seen yeah. the programme. And Ooh. I also remember going into another property. Mm-hmm. I think they were either an Italian or, or Spanish family. And in those properties, you often see them using marble because obviously they use a lot of marble in, the, uh, in those countries. And again, as it happens, it was a 1930s semi, actually well-maintained. And I walked into the garden, decking everywhere with palm trees, all very nice, walked into the house. And I kid you not, every inch of wall was clad in marble, but not like a nice beige marble. This was like the dark maroon and dark navy blue and a, a bit like an airport but quite distinct style. And my first thought was, oh, that's lovely. And my second thought was, what the hell is holding this house up? Because it was so, there was so much of it. Actually, it turned out it was affecting the structural stability of, of, of the property. There was so much of it inside. So, you know, they're just two off the top of my head, two examples as a surveyor when I've walked into a property. Was it good design? No, you know, they're obviously decorated it how they wanted but many surveyors will walk in and they'll be all listening to this now thinking oh yeah I remember that property (laughs) and we just need a beer or a glass of wine or a few of us together for it (laughs) for the stories to come out how does a surveyor when they walk into a home into a property know that it's a good design great question I think it goes back to understanding what good design is there's two avenues to this, and it's covered actually in a book, uh, Parentalia. Uh, I mentioned it in my book, actually. Um, I'm going to ask you about that a bit later, your book. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we've got two avenues, and I'll, I'll very simplify the approach. One is, of course, nature. So you've got beauty that is following the nature's principles, let's call it. And that is some default proportions and combinations of materials and layouts that instinctively are uh, assumed as beautiful because they are comfortable and they're based on what we expect and what we need. I'm simplifying this greatly. And there's others that are following, let's say, what is a trend, and that would be much more about something that's been socially created as a norm 
and that will always change. And so that will momentarily perhaps be seen as beautiful and then perhaps quickly not. Mm -hmm. So that's there's higher risk with something like that not being seen beautiful by more people, whereas the one that's more natural-based, let's say, style of beauty will be more homogeneously liked. And so it completely depends what you think is a good design. Is it for the people that are, as a one-off, going to feel that they belong into that space? Or is it going to be something that's going to stand the test of time and, and like be liked by more people? And none of us can really interpret beauty because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it is about, well, how is this space? How is this building? How is this home giving you the lifestyle and the, the clothes to wear that you feel are reflecting you as an individual? And so in residential design, now that is so important that, that's, that the home represents you. So many times interiors are representing the people inside there, you know, what they're lacking in, in what they're looking for life. It's about identity, you know, it's about beliefs and psychological situation. So it should be, at least, if it is about just something they saw in a magazine and just copied it like for like, they're going to regret it pretty quickly. And that's unfortunate. But unless they've got somebody to guide them and advise them of this kind of overarching principle of approach of design, then of course they don't know better. And I'd say there's this kind of conversation is not going on widely. So mm. overall, people don't know what how they should choose good design and house design and home design or whatever we call it. Um, I just love I just love that answer. <laughs> I'll just ponder on that a <laughs> minute. You. I just love that answer. And actually as I think about buildings that have been built over the years, the historic buildings, some of them just look good and they're timeless. It's that timeless classic property. And yet we see buildings over years that you know, often you'll see an old building that's had different layers on top of different styles, you know, different floors, or it's been extended in different ways. And sometimes you can tell the difference, the age, the period. Sometimes it works, sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And you're right, it's all about those sort of nature's proportions. And the, I love, absolutely love that. What worries me, I guess, is new build, new build property. Because you say about copying, yeah. <laughs> you know, what works and what doesn't. And as surveyors, we see a lot of new build property. I say new build, actually, you know, but probably the last 20, 30 years hasn't been great. No, I was going to say, we need it to be more, don't we? Especially in a home and resi, we need more homes, right? That whole mm. Mm. Or at least reuse better the ones that exist in different geographic locations of the UK. That's one of my bees in my bonnet. There's loads of homes actually deteriorating in areas where they're underfunded yeah. um, around the UK. And then we scream that we don't have enough homes in areas that are overinvested. It's a mishmash, isn't it? Of actually there's ho affordable homes in places, but the people aren't there. There isn't the investment to bring those homes up yes. to, you know, up to a habitable standard. And one of the things that surveyors do look out for, are meant to look out for when they do their surveys, is the, you know, habitable home standard to make sure that it is of a basic standard. And there are so many out there that that aren't. No. And I think it's really interesting to say, well, what is a basic standard and which parts of the human nature are we trying to support? And I always kind of mention this because it's really important to really understand when we're supporting a, a customer or client or tenant or a landlord, perhaps, you know, for, for, for their tenants. What part of this human are we trying to actually ensure is going to be healthy? So are we just saying, OK, it's not going to have damp and we because we know 
definitely know that damp is a problem. We may not know the exacts of how the human body reacts to that personally, right? But we've just been told that you shouldn't have damp other than it looks aesthetically ugly. Or you shouldn't have any kind of bugs or bacteria or rubbish thrown around because you actually know there's going to be some health issues related to that. So we can look at the issues that will affect the human body and that could be even just structural issues, right? Just from a mm. pure life and death situation, all the way to just bacterial issues, thermal comfort, acoustic comfort, or radiant comfort. It could be actually extreme hot or cold to the touch for children or something like that. So these are all affecting the body. And so if somebody's severe going into a, a home, they can say, well, actually, okay, I can look at how this space is going to affect the bodies of the people going in there. But actually, as a human being, you're made up with a lot more beyond that. So you, you're made up of cognitive processes. So how well are you going to think inside these spaces? Can you actually do proper analytical thought, reasoning? You know, how are you going to reason based on uh, to, to have a good relationship with your neighbours, right? And to engage with the local community. Things like that. They're things that you will process emotionally and cognitively. So, and emotionally, especially because of relationships, especially if we're reducing footprints and increasing the amount of uh, occupancy rates in blocks, less windows, um, more communal spaces. So how do we know if we're packing a lot of people in, especially with built to rent properties, where we've got a lot of the social pressure mm. being sold into that, how are we actually then taking care of the mental and emotional health of the people, not just the physical body. So in my view, we're, we're really low down on what we're looking at at the moment and what surveyors are valuing in properties and checking. And there's a huge, for me, added value there that needs to be recognised and delivered as in the profession, but also covered in the needs that we have in the built environment. We need to be recognising the lack of these characteristics and making sure they're designed in or retrofitted in in some way. I guess from a valuer's point of view, though, they'd be looking at some guidance and some standards or, you know, what adds value, what doesn't, how do I know? And I guess perhaps that's where it becomes very difficult from an interior design point of view to, you know, to make that sort of logical process or document down so that they can, you know, I can just see surveyors walking up to property saying, oh, this isn't a good design, I'm going to knock off 10 grand, <laughs> you know, and then you've got to justify it to somebody because someone else thinks actually that marble that they've put all over the place and doesn't allow the building to breathe is, uh, is, is great. That's always the, the difficulty, isn't it? Can I ask about, obviously, you know, we're recording this in October 2020. We've had a pretty crappy year so far. How is, uh, I mean, the things that you've talked about, well, being within, within people's homes, actually, if ever there was a, something to bring that to the fore, it's now. It's what we've been through this year. I mean, what are your thoughts on some of that? Two things. One, it definitely needs to be responded to as a need. Second, actually, I'm developing a service right now. And, and this is as a business too, kind of evolving, right? So we need to evolve to, to respond to where the need is. So more people are working from home. So how are homes now actually productive working environments? So that's something that we're developing now in an audit, let's say, that we could do quite cost-effectively over the phone. So through virtual means, and within an hour, say, right, well, what do you need to be doing? And let's look at your space where you're working. How does that actually meet your needs? So because they are different. You know, we have many colleagues, and I'm sure you've, you know, all of us, everybody listening to this will have had the colleague who's trying to balance having a video conference call with kids running behind mm. them or having the neighbours 
having some work done or all of those things all of those things have happened really recently to me we've got a new patio being laid next door my daughter's always uh, coming in and out of the room it's just it's just real life isn't it it is it is real life and so it does affect productivity and also just the environment the interior so i'm set up right now actually on my dining room table because i'm trying to make a decision actually where i'm going to have the next office because we closed our office uh, and we're looking actually to to move to a new design district so it's kind of fallen into that and i thought it would be quicker and so now i'm thinking okay if i'm going to be working longer and and my team is going to be working longer from home then how are we going to actually adapt the spaces that we are choosing to have as workspaces in such a way that they are supporting our productivity. Because in my living room, I've set it up for relaxation, for emotional well-being, but I haven't set it up to be highly stimulative. And that's both in the lighting, in the in the patterns, the colors, the furniture. So now I'm making literally my own assessment about well, what am I going to actually pay to, to change and not change too much the my environment that I live in and I want to also mm. relax in. So, you know, there's that kind of balance where we're bringing work at home and we have to be so much more disciplined, but also create a more dynamic relationship with the physical space to adapt it to our daily life. So that's what I'm looking at, basically. So I think we do need to respond to it. I think the interventions can be lighter or or bigger, greater, depending on everybody's circumstances. Some people can change the guest room. You know, they can do that. Mm -hmm. They want to do that. I don't necessarily want to do that. I don't want to do a permanent change in my guest room. But these are choices all, all of us can make. But we have to consider how we're adapting, both for the for our mental health. That's absolutely vital at the moment. You know, resilience is really low. So when you're having challenges, and, I, and I'm saying this actually on purpose, because I think a lot of us will just suck it up and say, no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm still performing, I can still do this, I'm, you know, I'm the professional I've always been, yes, I'll just work slightly different hours, but I I can do this. And sure, you can do this. What are you using? What is your, your, the extra, let's say, Mm -hmm. that you've got in storage that actually you're using to bring you up and to fill the gap that the circumstances have been taking out? And I think everybody has to recognize that. And it, it is not an indicator of weakness. Because I think it does get interpreted as if I'm using my resilience and I'm asking for it that to be propped up, I'm weaker. So I'm less professional or less capable. You know, that's, re- that's really interesting. Those are some of the things that I, I talk about on my coaching and the mastermind uh, programs that I run for, for SMEs. And you're right. It's, you know, where's that energy coming from to sustain you to work those longer hours, to do that extra work? And then actually as managers or as business owners, you know, if you've got, got people that you report into you or you look after, the pressure is it's then a case of, well, what, you're working from home. It must be quite easy and you're not, you're not coping. You haven't got the two hour commute that you used to have and you're not coping. But it's a really different environment to work in. There are different pressures. You know, everyone's worried about their jobs at the moment. And it's interesting you saying, you know, at the start you started to talk about, you know, the zones that we have have in homes. Many of the listeners will have followed my journey with uh, in my home as I work from home because my my husband started to work from home. He did a day on the kitchen table. It was apparent that wasn't going to work. So we changed our spare room. We were fortunate that we had a spare room and that became his little um, office with a table dumped in there. And I stuck a plant in so it looked 
presentable. But, yeah, and that, that was at what, back in March now? And that double bed, which we didn't know whether to keep or not, only the in-laws would use it when they came down, or my mum, actually came into my room. And I've got a Victorian house. The What would have been a dining room is, is my home office. It's been my home office for a, a couple of years. And it became a bit of a dumping ground for mm-hmm. everything else. And I was doing my you know, all my work and my videos and, you know, my training with a double bed right behind me because there's nowhere else for it to go. Yeah. So I put some plants and things in front of it. Um, I only have about three plants in the house and they've been moved around. So for, so for me, actually, over the last six weeks or so, I've actually been clearing out and get, getting my space back, my own space, because I realised that, you know, whilst I talk about work-life integration and you're one person and it's hard being different people at work and different people at home, the different hats that we wear, you do absolutely have to have boundaries. And my space became invaded with my five-year-old's drawings and colouring pens. She was using my work pens because apparently they're better than hers, obviously. You know, in, in my, my workspace, the double bed, any other junk that came from somewhere. And I've, you know, the bed has now gone to the charity shop. And I've had to cl- slowly, you know, get rid of things and declutter. And I can't tell you how liberating it is yeah. to have that to have that space. I've also, we've got locks on our doors. I lock the door when the kids are here and there's a call that I need to take and my husband takes over, you know, or if he's on a call, he locks the door and you have to have those, those boundaries. Not everybody can have that, but Mm. it occurred to me, I've got it. Why don't I, I use it. And then similarly, you talk about where you get, you know, the things around you and the stimulus that you have and the the energy that you get from things Mm. within my home office. And the the listeners can't see this, but I've got um, a fireplace, um, and it's a reproduction fireplace, oh, but um, we, when my husband changed his room, um, I've actually got a wooden uh, art deco fireplace that I've had for about 15 years, which we took from oh, our, yeah. our last property and I got it from a secondhand shop Very nice. and my husband was going to bin it and I burst into tears because I realised how much I love it. So we're bringing it into this room and we're going to make it work because I love it. And over this weekend, I just realised, and maybe it was because I knew I was going to be talking to you is that we need to have things around us that inspire us. Mm-hmm. And that fireplace around just happens to inspire me, you know. But for others, it could be colour, it can be pictures, anything. But if we don't have that around us, we're not going to be inspired. You know, and the same goes for us at home as if and as if we were in our, our offices and workspace. That's what, you know, people Sorry. design their offices and things for you know, it makes they, do, they don't you know and this is this is part of the difference now because in your when you're working from home let's say setting you do have the ability to tailor it much more to your own emotional needs whereas in a in a more let's say common office in, in the office you do have to create a middle sort of level that satisfies the majority of the user profiles that mm, are right. in that company in that department and that's something that I I think is is critical to good design is knowing who your user is and understanding their psychology and their emotional state. And also very importantly when it comes to working spaces is the amount of stimulation that you need to add or not for concentration and getting into the flow. So every time you're interrupted or every time you feel overstimulated, you're using part of your resilience to bring yourself to actually of what we call a flow, right? The actual thought process that's in the flow. So it means your your machine is working fluidly. It's got going. You're in the fifth gear. You can just keep going and going and going and going. 
you know, you're not putting that extra effort in, which is first and second gear, let's say in a car. And so the same thing, every time you're interrupted, you're having to go into first and second gear till you get to the fifth. So you're not as efficient. And so the more you're able to create the space around you that sort of harmonizes with your levels of stimulation and the tasks that you're doing, the more productive you're going to be. And this is really important. And that's, and I, I show you, so on the side here, I've got you on a desktop, so I can't turn it, but I'll move them. I've bought these new prints. So I'm testing out my different color patterns. So there's some Barbara Hepworth prints. So different colors stimulate me. And again, with a combination of the room that I have here, the patterns and the shapes, so more angular shapes create higher stimulation, cognitive stimulation in the brain. This is purely nature-based. In nature, sharp things can cut us. So by default, the human state is alert to sharper things, angular shapes. And so the more you can tilt perhaps some of these objects that you have in your room now there to be, if you need the stimulation. So that's another thing. So if you're doing more communication yourself in that room, actually you want to have tone on tone colors, so less contrast, and to actually have more curved uh, shapes or planes and things like that. So there's a few things to to tweak around and do a combination that suits you, though. It really has to suit you. And that's the difficult thing, isn't it? As a, as a value or a surveyor walking into a home, you know, it might suit the current occupant, but it might not suit the the next person that, that comes in. But we've got to sort of see past that, I guess. You know, there's the layout and the zone, you know, sort of elements, but it's from a surveyor's point of view, it's seeing past that. Can it be really decorated easily? Can it be sort of redesigned? Are you going to be chipping marble off the walls and, you know, replastering, you know, and sort of seeing past some of of those things? Well, what you're raising now is designed for disassembly and circular design. That is massively it's critical, but said to, to sustainability. That is basically the solution to our sustainability issues at the moment. Mm-hmm. So how do the materials that we are at the moment locking into buildings and creating a, a linear path, how can we actually change how we're introducing them into buildings and allow them to be used for however many years, you know, the current owners, the current tenants, whoever is going to use them. And then when they finish with that, depending on the material, especially, allow it to then be reused again for a similar kind of level of quality and value material. So the marble, especially. So we have, you know, ways that we can fix it. That is unclippable, unscrewable, you know, whatever, not just bond it onto Mm -hmm. the substrate. So immediately you've locked it in, you can't easily adapt it, huge cost for removing it, and then will dissuade people from buying the house that haven't actually got the money, basically. Mm. And I I, I guess in the future, these are the things that we and people will be focusing on, the sustainability of of our homes. And it's not just about having solar panels, you know, or a couple of recycling bins. Marion, the future is now. The future is now, uh, yeah. We, there is no future mm. unless we do it now, seriously. And I think everybody... So how, so how can surveyors right now mm. start to bring this into their into their work? Because I think there's... <laughs> yeah, how do they do something? How do do they they do that? You yeah. say, how do they do that? You can't necessarily just wait for guidance to come from somebody. You just start now. You start listening to a podcast, reading a book, making yourself aware talking to your clients about what they're interested in, how they're going to use the rooms, you know, and taking it a step further, yes. you know, and just starting to get interested. That's what you can do right now. Absolutely. 
Yes. And I think the, the, the first thing I would say of what you can do is actually do that step. Don't say to me, especially because I hear this all the time, well, they didn't ask for it. Yeah. No. Mm. They don't also ask for you to create a building that's not going to burn down in flames. They don't ask you also to create uh, slip resistant floors outside. They don't ask you to create actually stairs that are not going to be, you know, they're not going to trip down on. You know what I'm saying? So there's good practice. And at the moment, acting in a sustainable way is good practice. It's not even best practice. It's good practice. And so you, why are you waiting for some, for the client to ask you to do a good job? I mean, to do what really you ought to be doing already. And so I am pretty, very firm on this. Everybody says, oh, well, they didn't want it. And moan, moan, moan. No. I guess the worry is that we as a profession, we have so many rules and standards and guidance of the way that we should do things yeah. is that whilst those rules and standards are there to protect us and to help us deliver our best work, actually sometimes rules and standards and guidance can paralyze us Very in terms right. of fear. You know, I don't want to do something because I'm not an expert in it. Absolutely. I completely you know, agree with that. But it doesn't mean we can't start that conversation and become more aware. 100%. So, and some of the, uh, so there's a couple of things on that. One, I do agree with you that the rules can actually stifle innovation and actually strengthening those muscles of thinking for ourselves, you know, and taking kind of, you know, the bull by the horns and saying, no, I, I, I know what is right in the situation, not just the guidance book or the standards or whatever that I'm given. So we do have a lot of those, you know, which are good and they've come from a good purpose. You know, they've come from really important intentions to create safety and security, but on one, but they've gone too far to a degree or haven't included, let's say, sustainability in their making. So it's not that we don't need them, I think. I think there's absolutely a purpose for them. But we've got to, in a way, and unfortunately, remake some of them because at the moment they're causing mm. more damage than they are actually creating safety. So, so I think that's one just issue to, to respond to that. The other one is about what can you do? And I, call, and I do generally, I'm known to sort of put into two broad camps. One is a nudge. The other one is a shove. And in every single project, every single conversation alone, you know, whether it's on the phone or face-to-face or a survey, there will be quick wins that you can see. They'll be tiny. It doesn't matter. Even if it's one on a project, do it, you know. And, and if it's a, it's a shove, because actually the client is kind of, well, you know, the sustainability stuff, you know, I guess we should be doing something about it. But anyway, onto the color of the walls whatever yeah and then you kind of you can go away and come back again and think actually okay they actually are thinking about it so maybe I could shove something here so you know you think about what solution actually is quite a biggie but pick one that you know Mm. that they will go with and is not conflicting with any other requirements but you can do this and also I guess there's a way of if it's if it's important to you it becomes the way that you do things you know, it just, it, it, you integrate it into the way that you work. And that's something that we at the Blue Box and the Surveyor Hub have really taken on board over the, the last couple of years to be a real values-driven business in that this is the way that we do things. If you don't like it, that's fine. You're just not for us. Yes. Okay. You know, and that's meant that we've parted ways with some clients, reviewed some of the contracts to look at the type of work that we do look at the work that we only enjoy, people we like, we like working with. And I tell you what, it's been so much more fun because you're then energised and got more, you know, more energy to focus on other things. 
you know, other opportunities then come up, but it comes back to understanding your values and what's important to you. And I think that goes for, for any business, whatever sector you're in. Let me ask you about your business because, you know, you, you mentioned there that you closed your office and you're now working from home. How has the last year really affected, affected your business? So, um, hmm. well, I think that personally, I, I've seen also in, in uh, influence of Brexit situation. Right. So I think it wasn't, so I'd say the journey over the last year has been Brexit related first. And then unfortunately, COVID has nicely uh, topped it off. <laughs> boosted. Yes, exactly. Really boosted that. So I'd say in new projects starting, I would say absolutely has, has really been limited. What I do see, though, is a conversation around sustainability that started probably from last summer and um, really got going throughout last year, irrespective of the sociopolitical situation. And I actually would credit a lot the influence of Extinction Rebellion. I know Marmite for lots of people, but they really, really hit home with the message and I think have really um, made a change. And also the Greta effect, you know, she's really, really made a change again and I'd say that has re- I've seen a, an, a distinguishable step up in the consciousness of everyone whether it's friends or clients or, or, or subcontractors or suppliers manufacturers everyone has is not questioning anymore about whether this is something that's real and the fact that we need to respond to it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that everybody's kind of starting to make a change in their own arena, whether that's a client again or, or, or manufacturer. So to the point that we met up, I won't name names, but we met up with one of the sort of most cutthroat kind of developers in London. And they themselves said, you know, we always used to develop, sell, make the most money develop again, make the most money and constantly move on without looking back. And they said they're not doing that anymore. They've realized they have to take responsibility and they're going to be there for the long term now. Uh, they're going to take care of their legacy. And and these are, you know, three gentlemen who, you know, absolutely alpha male style, really bullish, really all in for the money, now saying this isn't good anymore. We are changing. We are doing this because we know, you know, it's knowledge. It's not just information. It's knowledge. They personally have been affected by what they've seen, heard, and understood to be true. And now they're changing their whole business and and, and, and including it on sustainable criteria performance, mm-hmm. uh, both in the way their buildings are going to be delivered, operated, and catering for their tenants. So this is a, this, you know, I mean, I was so dumbstruck in that meeting because I did not expect it to be such a sort of across the board, let's say, intention statement and um, and requirement, basically. And they were saying to us, how can you help us then take care of the well-being in the design? You know, help us to strategically make sure we're setting the right principles as a business for the built environment that we're creating, and then all the way down to the design characteristics themselves in the spaces that we're delivering. So for me, that was, so although we've had huge changes, of course, as we said, you know, in the industry and everything, I'm seeing also huge changes towards what I'll call good. And and very, there's been a few little hiccups in the journey of people keeping up their sustainability intentions mm-hmm. and actions, definitely. But I'm seeing some that actually before may have not done it, now have had the time to do it because of the slowdown in in, in business. You know, they're, they're taking care of their home, if that makes sense, literally, yeah. and actually 
trying to see what can they do to become a more sustainable business, both in their own operation, whether it's a contractor, you know, their own internal systems and processes, all the way to to clients and how they're going to design and deliver something that's a bit more sustainable. And I say a bit more sustainable because everybody's on a journey. We all have a different levels. We shouldn't kick each other, just do what you can. So, so we're seeing requirements basically to tag onto teams, to create internal manuals, you know, for, for sustainable refurbishment of corporate real estate, sustainable benchmarking, that kind of stuff, you know. So, and design, okay, so design, new design work is definitely on the low, very, very much so. I mean, we're just finishing a resi in West London, beautiful, really, really environmentally friendly and supporting well-being of the clients. Uh, can't wait to share photos. That's been a struggle though, to, to complete during COVID, you know, mm. and, and finish it off. So as a business, I guess we're just seeing huge different changes, but not necessarily a negative, let's say, because we specialize in sustainability and well-being. Mm. And that is not being compromised on, I'd say. Yeah. And I guess the more more companies that start to approach that and it starts to become the next trend or thing to do, you know, it then becomes embedded. And a lot of people will have had the time to think this year over what's important and the way that they want to to run their businesses. And I think maybe perhaps it'd be interesting to see the the knock-on effect for residential and new build. Because if we don't need to commute everywhere now and we can work from home, Mm -hmm. then people won't be as restricted to the areas that they live. And therefore, is there a possibility that, you know, we don't have to buy that new build on an estate that's is the only one within commutable distance to the train station that we've got more choice that will start to change the way that our company, uh, our country is run in terms of or rather infrastructure. Right. So first of all, infrastructure, that's the word, Yeah, you know, and you can, you can start to, to just see how it will then start to unfold. And then maybe people will start to decide who they want to build their home or who they buy off. And that's where, actually things like the values of these companies and you know how they invest in their people and their organization as much as the product that they that they build and sell actually becomes really really important i think that i'm seeing that a lot anyway um through my sort of customer experience work a real sense of um associating yourself with a company or an organization because the way it's acted and behaved and approached you know this whole pandemic uh, this year really starting to see see um one of the things i do is i judge on a uh, an awards for for customer experience and i'm seeing really starting to see that that come through and so the same goes for you know individual surveyors you know sharing your story of why you're a surveyor you know what's important to you how you approach sustainability and and giving back on and all of those things you know there are you just start somewhere you do. And I, and I, what I will say is it needs courage. And I think people don't realize, you know, they think, oh, just do it. You know, it's just a few words or whatever, but you need to own it. And you can only do that when you're willing to say, this is who I am and stand for it. And it is definitely very difficult for a lot of people who are going to be afraid to be judged, you know, not liked, not seemed good enough, enough, And, you know, these are human behaviors, you know, all of us, 
are going to worry at some point. You know, if you're not worrying about being liked or, or or included in something, then I would say you're on the spectrum and okay, but I'll be worried. But I think if you care about how people see you and and, and value you and how they're going to judge you, it just shows an emotional openness. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and let's work on it. So I think that's a good thing, but it does need courage. And I think it's important for us to say that because if, if we don't look at it, then we're not becoming it and we are faking we're faking being a professional of some sort and we become yeah. the vanilla. And that's where personally, I, when I, I did that for years, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my career kind of trying to be what everybody around me said was the right professional. And that included lying about people I knew or people I was connected with or creating designs that weren't caring for their actual occupants but would look good on the brochures and stuff like that you know there were polishing egos of developers and that I was dying as a human being that was it was so fundamentally uncomfortable for me to be in such an environment it was toxic it really was toxic and I know my firms were not you know, it was how things were in, in mm. the 90s and noughts, you know, it really was. And we accepted it. And I just think it's it's not good enough anymore. I think we all know better. We, If we're going to live a life that's worth it and make sure that we are going to flourish, we need to be honest and we need to be open. And first of all, to ourselves, mm. you know, who am I? What, what's important to me? And then, as you said earlier on, you know, that sometimes that means you're not going to be liked by everybody. It doesn't mean you should be a bad person but you're going to find perhaps more harmony with part of, you know, the market, not all the markets. And that's right. That's good. Anyway, so I I totally agree with what you were saying earlier on about that. And, you know, sometimes you have to say goodbye to some clients because they are ethically not in line and you could not serve them and it would cost you. And, And I tried that, you know, I've tried serving clients earlier on that I thought I should be chasing. You know, I thought there'd be the 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 big bank account, you know, filler or whatever. And uh, I ended up losing more money because it took it out of me and I wasn't the right fit for the job. And I was trying to, sh- you know, what is it, round peg in a square hole? Yeah, yeah. And I see so many of, the, of that, so much of that going on now, you know, now that I've kind of become aware of it and, and work on it myself to not push myself down a, a, a new job route that is actually long-term going to be unsustainable and uneconomic I think, and I highly recommend that to everybody mm-hmm. so can I just touch upon a couple of things before I stop this one thing mm-hmm. um you talked about upskilling and that's something that I've seen and so I do quite a lot of talks you know in the industry both to change minds but also to just upskill I guess audiences around well-being and environmental issues and I always got approached at the end by people in the audience saying, oh, how do you know what you know? And where can I, what can I read? How can I learn more basically about sustainable interiors or whatever I was talking about? And so um, so I thought, okay, people want to know more. And we get so many CVs, you know, of students who are desperate to, to know about sustainability, shockingly showing the gap in current education really, really dire. And so I thought, fine, okay, well, I can't support everybody. And it takes time to do it. So anyway, we created a basically an online course. So Design for Wellbeing is .co.uk is basically a, a course we've set up to train at the moment other designers, but we've also got some other uh, healthcare professionals, HSC kind of stuff, who want to understand actually, well, what does it mean creating a healthy space, a healthy home, healthy business, healthy school? And what does wellbeing mean? Let me ask you about your book. 
How did you come about writing a book? So, um, oh gosh, I never planned actually to say, you know, I'm going to write a book. So first of all, that was never one of my, on my to-do list. I think actually following on from what we've just been talking about, I did, I organised with the Building Centre, Building Centre Trust in central London. Fantastic organisation. If anybody doesn't know about it, please do. They do a huge amount to support general knowledge sharing in the industry of all kind of different sectors of of the built environment. And we approached them as we were tenants in, in that fabulous space for about 10 years. And during that time, we approached them and and collaborated on setting up some talks around well-being. And this was really early days and when it really wasn't talked about in the industry. So talk about 2011, probably around there. And when it still was seen as candy floss, basically, you know, and uh, it's, it's kind of fluffy things for tree huggers. So we were really, really trying to bring the science into the discussion of how we design and to make sure it was done in an evidence-based way. So I invited anyone and everyone who was doing something around the research that we needed to be done. And one of the attendees was a commissioning editor from the RIBA, from Reba Publishing. And uh, yeah, they just said, hey, have you ever thought about putting this in a book? And I'm like, no. Do I talk? Yes. And then seven years later, and three versions of the book later, <laughs> something got published. But yeah, different commissioning editors came and went. They Everybody had a different idea about how the, the topic should be tackled. And with a very, very fast changing, of course, industry, because of all the efforts that we were all doing to push it, the agenda was moving on. Anyway, so I ended up with a book of the version, actually, that I thought I probably wanted to write at the end. So I'm really happy with what's come out. Yes, would I make changes again? Of course. <laughs> uh, so I definitely, you know, would write version two. But I, the objective of it has been to try and help basically make it practical, give a little bit of the philosophy behind some of these big ideas to understand the origin of why we're doing what we're doing. And then to make the link between, let's say, the theory and what we as professionals need to do in practice. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important. I, I love it and I love the way it feels Oh, yes. Notice that intentional, yes. <laughs> I love that. Um, one final question, I want, um, or something I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, I said at the start, you're you're not uh, you're an interior designer, not a traditional surveyor, but you are an honorary member of the RICS. I am. I don't think we've had an honorary member of the RICS on the podcast to date. So oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, could you explain for the for the listeners what what that is and how that how that came about? course thank you I don't get asked about my my <laughs> ONS status actually so this is probably the first time I've had to explain it it actually it was in the recognition of the contribution I've made towards sustainability in the built environment and within the RICS in specifically and around the SCAR rating scheme the environmental assessment method for interior fit out and refurbishment projects so um, I worked with the team in RICS about 10 years and did a, a lot of voluntary work to change my hearts and minds and create tools uh, with different institutions, collaborating with different institutions in the industry to yeah, support and promote a more sustainable approach and agenda around refurbishment and fit out. And uh, so a couple of the staff inside Rick's uh, had no clue this was going on. Basically, 
uh, championed for me to become a member. I, I ended up knowing all the security guards and everybody on Great George Street, you know, to <laughs> such a degree and not being a member. And everybody was always shocked that I wasn't a member. And I think they thought, what? How can you not be a member, basically? And so they put together this uh, application and I was just present- told that I had been uh, given an honorary membership for life. And um, in response to, yeah, to the... To the um, yeah, I guess the overall. I think it's a really important thing to recognise, actually, is that although we're surveyors, we're part of a bigger picture in terms of the built environment. Yeah. The only other honorary, honorary RICS surveyors, oh, I forget the words out now, uh, the honorary RICS of people I know are actually lawyers or have worked in the claims side. So it's actually quite nice to meet someone who's Career designer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> how far of, of kind of the general concept of surveying can that be? And I think this is really important, both for the surveyor mindset, but also the interior designer mindset, because we have both professions perhaps thinking themselves at, at um, different ends of a project and different um, remits. And there is such overlap. There needs to be a much much greater overlap between the professions and how they're working together and understanding each other's needs and roles and stuff like that. And I guess I've come through the years of working with with the RICS, I've come to actually respect the nature of a surveyor and the multifaceted services they, they need to give, the important cogs in the project that they are to make things work, and but also how much more they need to do. You know, the profession is dire for evolution. It really, really, I cannot press this enough because surveyors are so core in projects and they've worked very hard for this position, but to stay in that and to make the the sustainable results that we need, it's down to the surveyor role, whether that's a contracts manager, whether that is land surveyors, whether that is quantity surveyors, and I'll mention that with regards to circular economy, they are they are at a critical point to upskill themselves now around sustainable design and procurement. I cannot stress that enough, how important it is for everyone's ambitions to, to achieve a sustainable future. But it, but I have got a respect for that and, 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 and I love the opportunity that's there, you know, and I've tried through the RSES, but it's a huge, huge institution, as we all know. And for its... You know, you just start... Yes. just start and the fact that you've started is great you know we'll talk we'll reach more people with this podcast they will will you know change their businesses and pass things on you know and and it has that ripple effect but if if nobody starts then nothing happens um, Alina it's been really really good to talk to you today thank you so much I've really enjoyed it me too thanks very much for fantastic questions you've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.